Open your Bibles again, if you will, to Haggai, the second chapter. And as you're turning there, I'm beginning to notice more of our snowbirds returning. And it is great to have you back. We're looking forward to many more joining us uh, as the, the months go by, and we'll look forward to them coming as well. You know, as we look at this, God's voice came to a very discouraged and broken-hearted people through Haggai the prophet. They had become discouraged and broken-hearted because God had revealed to them in the first chapter of Haggai that he was bringing a chastening upon them. He was essentially judging their conduct, and he was causing them to experience his chastening hand in a variety of different ways. Their crops did not bear the fruit that they had anticipated. The uh, When they would go for food, what they had was much less than what they were hoping that they would be able to have. When they did projects themselves, the things that they had worked in were not accomplishing everything that they had hoped. And there was a deep sense of dissatisfaction, even within their own hearts. Then... Haggai the prophet came, and as the Lord directed him, he brought before the people of Israel this remnant who had returned from the captivity that had occurred initially at the hands of the Babylonians, but now was under the authority of the Medes and the Persians who had overtaken the Babylonian Empire. And under Cyrus' declaration, about 50,000 of the, the Jews and servants of those individuals came back into the land, and they were to begin the project of rebuilding the temple. They got the foundation of the temple laid, and in a result of that, there was two different reactions. There was sadness in the hearts of those who had seen the previous temple, because what they saw in this foundation was much smaller than what they had recognized before in Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. There was the cry of joy among the younger ones because they had never experienced the worship of the true and the living God at the temple, and now they know that the foundation is being laid for that temple to be constructed. But a period of time goes by... Uh, just about 15 years or so, and they really did not make any progress on the building of the temple. They were discouraged, they were disappointed because things were not working out the way they had anticipated, and they had lost a sense of gratitude. They were busy working on their own things, and God was pushed out of the picture. And then the prophet came and said, Do you, under do you understand why you've been going through such hard times? I want you to know something. I have withdrawn my hand from blessing you. And instead, you are receiving a curse as a result of your disobedience for the purpose to which I had called you back into this land, which was to rebuild the temple. The wonderful thing about this was when the Lord revealed to them that they were being chastened by him, they responded. And the Bible tells us that they changed their minds. There was a spirit of repentance. There was a contrite spirit that followed. And as a result of that, we come to chapter 2. 
In chapter 2, God gives three new messages through Haggai the prophet. And each one of them is broken down by a declaration of the time frame in which that message was given. We read two of them today. Last week we read the first of those three messages. And the purpose of those messages was to bring encouragement to, to build the spirit of the people of Israel so that they would get back to the work. They had become very spiritually indifferent. They hadn't been involved faithfully in carrying out the work that the Lord intended them uh, intended for them to do. And so now, their hearts have changed, and the Lord responds to them, and He gives them these three messages. The first message that we looked at last week begins down there in that very first verse, and I'm not going to reread the first nine verses for you, but here is what it concludes there in verse 4. He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you. And there was the first promise that the Lord gave. I am with you. That promise was a binding promise that God had placed upon himself. And here's one of the beauties of that promise. That promise has been reiterated to the church, people who by faith have accepted Christ as their Savior. That same promise remains for us because this promise that was given in Haggai is quoted by the writer of Hebrews to remind us that the Lord has declared to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we know that the presence of God is with his people. But what does that imply for us? And what we saw last week was, the first thing it implied was that God can make much of little. He talked about this foundation of the temple that was laid, and how it seemed so small, and and it did not seem to have the glory that the previous temple had. And God said this, he said, this temple is going to be greater than the first one, because I am going to manifest my presence there, and when you see my presence there, when you see me working on your behalf, you will understand the glory of what I'm going to do. That was not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's temple. There was a declaration that made it clear that that temple was going to be part of a continuation that would ultimately result in the temple that Christ himself would build during the millennial reign, when he comes back to rule and to reign here on the earth. And so the promise to these people is, you may be a little bit disheartened now, but listen, take hope. What I have planned for the future, you are going to be glad that you were part of this whole process because this is going to be such a great thing. Don't you doubt for a moment that with very little things, I can do much. When the Lord uses little tools and he does a great work, who gets the glory? He does. We're little tools. And he says, I can use you. And I can make much out of what I've called you to do, no matter how small you think you are, no matter how untalented you may feel, no matter how small you might believe your gifts are, I can do a great work through you. I just need you to be willing to be used. People of Israel were greatly encouraged by that. There was a second element that comes out of his presence with them, and that is that he causes our efforts to have meaning. When you and I perform a work for the Lord, 
when we are motivated by the power of His Holy Spirit, the work that we're involved in has meaning and has accomplishment of great divine purposes and great divine goals. Let, let me give you a case in point. Some of you who work with the little ones, the, the little children, you may think, you know what, I, I'm just kind of teaching them little Bible stories and, and um, I, I'm not really sure where this is going to go. Here's what I can tell you. God is the one who gives meaning to every effort we make for him. And in the process of bringing about his purpose, he uses us, though it might seem to be in very, very little ways, to bring about great works for his own glory. You have no idea what those little children will become. You have no idea, those of you who work in Awana, those of you who have volunteered, and I really appreciate, we, we've had a response for people helping out in the nursery, which, which we really need, and, and ushers. I, I think we're going to be able to have men ushers. But let me warn you, we're going to the ladies, if you, and there is nothing prohibiting that other than our traditions. But anyway, having said that, have I made you angry? I, I don't think so. Anyway, you don't know what's going to come out from those little lives. I look back. My mom made me go to Sunday school. Dad didn't go. But mom made me go. And I'd sit through classes. And I can remember wanting to punch out Richard Reed. Can you believe I remember that kid's name from little? He grabbed my tie tack. As a little kid, I wore a tie. I was a geek. I would have been considered a little nerd. I, that's the honest truth. I used to carry around a briefcase in high school. <laughs> you laugh, but you have to have courage to do something like that. <laughs> anyway, I can remember him breaking my tie tack, and I just, oh, man, I just wanted to deck him on the spot and... I'm afraid he'd have beat me. So I couldn't do that. Little would anybody think that from that group of children, God would raise up another generation of people who love him and desire to serve him. And that's what you're doing. Do you understand that you have the opportunity? And I'm not, obviously, you, you all understand, I'm not just limiting this to those that work with the little children. Some of you help out with the teens. Some of you help out with our grown adults. Some of you are involved in, in working with our retirees. And I look at this and I say, do you understand that the things that you're doing have eternal value? Do you realize that there are some great work projects that have come to nothing? The Twin Towers. Was that a big project? Where are they now? We obviously have a great deal of meaning and uh, an emotional attachment to those, but they're gone. And somebody would say, what a grand project! And where is it now? It's gone. And you might look at yourself and say, 
what am I doing that has any value? And the Lord says, when you are serving me and pouring your life into other people for the glory of Jesus Christ, what you're doing has eternal value. And it will follow you throughout all eternity. It's not going to collapse. It's not going to burn. So he tells them, work, for I am with you. He goes on to tell us in verse 5 that there is another element involved with his presence. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Do you remember how the Israelites were experiencing fear because there were a great deal of threats that had surrounded them when they would begin the work projects again? And they were very much afraid for their own lives. Now the Lord says this, If I am for you, who can be against you? If you're going to fear anyone, fear me. See, the, the, the problem that people often have, and the, the children of Israel had, and my guess is many followers of Christ today have, is that we look at the problem instead of looking at our defender. We become afraid of the enemy instead of relying and trusting on the one who has taken upon himself our well-being. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. Our Savior suffered. Why should we get out of it? It doesn't mean we won't have hard times. But what it does mean is this. You will never be overwhelmed by anything that comes your way. Because I am your protector. And what you and I don't understand is that God has protection all around us. Listen, if it wasn't for the protection of God right now, we would not be in this place. Do you understand that? It is His hand that has protected us because we have a diabolical, spiritual enemy who will do everything within His capability to stop people from gathering together for the purpose of worship and for the purpose of bringing glory to God. But we have one who is greater that is in us than he that is in the world. As a result, we are free to come here. And you say, ah, yeah, I think you're stretching it. Oh, yeah? Do you remember the prophet Eli uh, Elisha? Elisha was an instrument used by God on a variety of different occasions, but in this one particular occasion, when the Syrians were giving problems to Israel, Elisha was an instrument that God used to convey to the king of Israel messages that warned that king of what the Syrians were doing. And every time the Syrians had a plan to do something against Israel, Israel was ready for them. And the king said, how is this happening? And his advisors understood what was going on. And he told them. What did I say? They told him. I knew I said that wrong. Sometimes I'm thinking, well, do you, ever, do you ever say something at this point, but your mind is already down here? Okay, does that happen? It just happened to me. And I'm saying, what did I just say? Because I'm down here. Because here's what the bottom line is. The Syrian king finds out that Elisha is giving messages to the king of Israel because God is giving those messages to Elisha. And the king of Syria says, guys, go get him. 
And so the army of the Syrians gathered around the place where Elisha lived. And Elisha had a servant, and the servant was scared to death because he looked out the window and he saw the Syrians all around them. And it's, hey, listen, it's over. We're done. We're cooked. And Elisha says, why, why are you so afraid? Well, look at the enemy. Look at that enemy out there. Wouldn't, shouldn't you be afraid too? Elijah just, I, I don't know how this happened, but I can just imagine. Oh, you poor soul. Lord, show him what we have around us and how you are our protector. And the Bible tells us that the servant's eyes were opened and surrounding on the hillsides were chariots of fire and an angelic host that intervened on behalf of Elisha and his servant. And the enemy could not do anything to them. Instead, the angelic host blinded the eyes of the Syrians and Elisha... This is so cool. I mean, you've got to get a hold of these things and look and say, how did all this happen? Elisha and his servant lead the, the uh, Syrians right into Samaria, which is where the army of the Israelites is stationed. They're all there. And then all of a sudden, the eyes of the Syrians is opened, and now they understand where they are, and it's like, oh, and... They're afraid, and they should be, because they don't have anybody protecting them. And then the king asks, shall we kill them? And Elisha says, no. He says, you treat them kindly, because we've, we've already got them beat. He says, if you can't beat them, <laughs> they'll take care of things. And the Israelites treated the Assyrians, or the Syrians well. I think we become uh, neutralized in our walk with the Lord, oftentimes, because we have a tendency to look at the enemy and not at the defender. We don't see the infinite hand of God that protects us. Do you understand you are safer on the battlefield in the will of God than you are anywhere else in the world? Well, I know Christians that have died. Yeah, I do too. Praise the Lord, they are home. But those that God doesn't want to die, they are safe. I don't care what the enemy is like. Why should we be afraid? Why should we be scared? If anybody should be courageous, it should be us. And God is telling the Israelites that. Don't be afraid. Then he goes on down in verse 9. He says, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Here is the fourth element of what his presence does. His presence gives peace. It's an external peace. You say, wait a minute, we're, we're not at peace. Yes, we're going to be withdrawing our troops from Iraq, but I'll tell you this, when we're not fighting in Iraq, we're going to be fighting someplace else. It's inevitable. And it's because of the, the, the vileness of the human heart and, and the sinfulness of mankind, and there will be wars. 
And, and that's the way it's going to be. And there is not peace yet. But the Lord told us that one will ultimately reign who is the prince of peace. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And the day is coming which all of the externals will also be at peace. That is going to be a great day. That is going to be... Those of you who have been involved in war and in conflict, you understand the horror of what's involved in that kind of fighting. Um, if you want to just get a little glimpse of it, just look at the, the scenes we saw this past week with Gaddafi. Listen, that happens to a lot of people. And, and even worse things. War is an awful thing. It is a terrible thing. And one day, all wars will cease when the Prince of Peace reigns. But today, the Prince of Peace can reign internally. He can reign within our hearts. You see, I believe there are a lot of people today, and I, and I don't believe this is everybody. I, I sometimes hear, and I, I know I'm guilty of this too, we use hyperbole, we, we use expressions that are more inclusive than what they should be. I believe that there are a lot of people in the world today who don't have peace within their hearts. I think there are some people who don't, they're, they're actually indifferent, that are unsaved, and, and to them, they're satisfied with the wealth that they have and the power that they have and all those other things. So I, I can't speak to them. But here's what I do know. When people have within their hearts a lack of peace, they say there has to be more than what I know. There has to be something else. And a turmoil begins to brew because there's no real sense in why we're even here. Is, is this life nothing more than just going through all the motions, earning a living, trying to enjoy as much as you can, and then dying, and it's all over? And there's something in the human heart that tells us that's not it. There is more. And sometimes it's a conflict in knowing you have sinned and not knowing what can take care of that sin. It might be having tried everything that the world has to offer. You, you've, you've tried the drugs. You've been down that road. And there is still nothing that's satisfied. You've, you've engaged in all of the sexual activity that your heart desired, and there's just nothing that's satisfied. You tried to accumulate goods, and those goods don't satisfy. And here's why. You don't know the Prince of Peace. It's when we come to trust Christ and we're justified. We are declared righteous by a holy God because of the work that Christ did for us at Calvary. We were singing this morning about the blood of Christ. And I can't help but wonder if people who are not familiar with the Scriptures and with the way we talk... what. What a, what's this about the blood? The blood is the indication that Christ gave up his life. It was the shedding of his blood that caused him to die. And in his death, our sins were paid for. And there is where we find peace. When we put our faith and trust in that death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we find is that the guilt of our sin is forgiven by a holy God and we don't carry it anymore. 
It doesn't mean I live perfectly. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. What shall wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is, it's not, it's not some mysterious thing. It's the reality that Christ died and he took our penalty. The penalty of our sin is death. And that's what he took. And so he died so that we might live. And the only way people are going to find real peace is when they come into a right relationship with their creator and they believe that Jesus died for them. And as it says in Romans chapter 10, they call upon his name. Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me. And I'm trusting him as my Savior and my Lord. And by your grace, I accept forgiveness and eternal life as the free gift that you give to me. What's better than that? What's better than that? Nothing. I give you peace. And do you know how long that peace is going to last? Forever. Forever. For believers. For those who know Christ as Savior. For those that don't, there will never be peace. Never. It will never be your experience. You know, after something like happened this past week with Gaddafi, and I realize he's just one of many, many people that died. Doesn't it ever cross your mind, what's he experiencing right now? What, what is this like to be separated from God and have no hope for reconciliation? See, everybody that passes into eternity that has not trusted in Christ, they go to the same place as a Gaddafi. Well, the Lord made this promise to the Israelites. I'm with you. Now, we move on into the next session. That, by the way, that was just finishing up message one. Now, I've already told the guys upstairs that we're going to finish this today. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One is next week we have the youth service. Then the two weeks after that we have the missions conference. And the two weeks after that... I'm taking my lovely wife on a vacation. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, no, 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 don't, I don't, don't. <laughs> See, what, what you don't understand is we're going camping and she's doing all the cooking. <laughs> so uh, that's not a vacation. Oh, sure it is. I just, I kick back at the fire and uh, just have a great time there. Anyway. I want you to look at this again. Now, I've already read verses 10 down through verse 19. And in those verses, there were a couple things that were introduced. One was, can you touch something unclean, 
or pardon me, something that is clean. And by the way, this is a reference to several passages under the law where there were elements that were clean and holy in God's sight, and then there were elements of things that were not. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean until you were cleansed from that uncleanness. And if you touched someone else while you were unclean, they became unclean. And if you were carrying a righteous uh, uh, a sacrifice, and it was given specifically for the sin offering. And the sin offering is holy and righteous before God. This is the right thing to bring this sin offering. And if that touches something, does it make it holy and right? And the answer is no, because you can't communicate that righteousness unless you are in direct contact with that I'm just going to put it in the terms for us today with that righteous one. But you can spread your unrighteousness to others. Here, let me explain it this way. I'm shaking hands with people as they leave the church. Just before a person shakes my hand, they go... (coughs) Pastor, it's so good to see you. Okay, now let me, you, you, you all think this is funny, but this is exactly what happens. First thing I do after I'm done shaking hands out here, I go right into the bathroom, wash my hands, dip it in alcohol, and spread a fire over it. <laughs> no, because here's what you know. You know that you can communicate a cold. You can communicate sickness. But if somebody that's really healthy walks up to me and says, Pastor, nice to see you this morning, and they shake my hand, do I now become healthy? No. That's that's what's going on here. And so what the Lord is saying is, you who have rebelled against me, you who have been spiritually indifferent, you have become unclean in the way you behave, and everything you touched became unclean. And so what the Lord does is He gives us an explanation why the crops have not been what they've expected. Why the, the vat of wine was not nearly as full as they had thought. It's because everything you've touched, and you've touched other people, and I'm speaking not now of just physically, but I'm speaking about the influence that you've had upon other people. You have made them unclean. He says, so where's the answer to turning this around? Well, every individual must respond in an appropriate way. And so what the Lord is bringing us to is this understanding. He will bless those who come in the right way. Look at what it says down there in verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. Why? Because these things have all been under a curse because of the way you've been behaving. But, you've turned away from the way you've behaved. Now I'm reading between the lines here. I'm reading into this what we had found out in the first chapter. You have turned away from that. So now here's what's going to happen. But from this day, I will bless you. In other words, you have put yourself in the place of blessing... And by the way, doing the right thing doesn't earn God's blessing. Doing the right thing keeps the door open for God's blessing. You know why God blesses us? Because He chooses to. 
That's, that's the reason. We don't earn his blessings. And I think sometimes people think, well, if I do the right thing, then God's going to bless me. Well, if you do the right thing, you're going to leave the doors open for blessing. But don't think for a moment that God is blessing you. And, and, and when we talk about blessing, what do we mean? Well, it can be material things as it was in this specific case for the Israelites, but sometimes the most blessed people don't have much material. How about the, the, the woman who cast in the two pennies and the Lord said, boy, that woman, she understands. I don't know what happened to her later, but I would suspect she was greatly blessed. And it wasn't because she tossed in the two pennies, it's because she had the right heart. Well, what's the Lord communicating to us? Well, the blessing may come materially, but the blessing may come within your spirit. You may find a great warmth and satisfaction with my fellowship and with my service and and doing what I desire, and I'm going to see that your life is fulfilled. See, one of the problems they had, they weren't being fulfilled in the projects they were carrying out. And he says, now I'm going to give you a great deal of fulfillment. And it can be in a whole variety of different ways. So we leave the door open for blessing when we do what's right. And that's exactly what the Israelites did here. And as a result, our spiritual condition is involved in leaving those doors open for blessing. I'm not sure how far I want to go in with this. Well, let's talk about this. When we leave those doors open, through our spiritual condition, God promises His blessing, but He doesn't tell us when. That is a very important thing to lay hold of. Let me explain why. These people had turned in their hearts three months before. That's why those dates are given. We're given a timeline from the sixth month. Then there was the seventh month when the Lord said he would be with them. Then two months later in the ninth month, there is the second and the third message, and the Lord says, I will bless you. But they're thinking, well, where's the blessing? We still go to the fields, and the crops aren't any good. And then we go to the vats, and the wine is not there. And where is the blessing? And he says, it'll come in my time. And he says, and today's the day. Watch what happens. Why is that so important for us to understand? Well, let me use the young people. Okay? Boy, where are the rest of the young people? Are they all wiped out from... They're all sleeping? Yeah, yesterday was a big day for the kids from Highlands. You guys stay in the place of God's blessing. And where are some of the other young people? I want to be able to talk to all of you. Are they scattered all around this morning? Okay, you got some over here. Okay. All right. Well, then I'm going to just talk to the whole bunch of you. You keep yourself in the place of God's blessing. And when the time is right, God will bring the mate of his choice into your life. See, sometimes 
Even obedient followers of Christ become impatient. And they say, well, I I don't want to go through the rest of my life single. Who's going to cook when we go camping? (laughs) Boo. (laughs) And kids will make decisions based upon their emotional draw. And they find out that they've married a person they never should have married. And I think that's happening a lot today because half of the marriages in the Christian community are winding up in divorce, as well as in the world. That ought to tell us something about how we're living for Christ. You be patient. Uh, Some of you who are living lives of obedience are wondering, when is God going to open the door and give me a job? He will do it at just the right time. And I know that's easy for me to say. I know that. But it's also easy for me to say this. I know the Lord never fails. And he will not forsake his own. And at just the right time, he will take care of that. That's why we can't get too anxious about things. Just be patient. Let me, let me give you the other point on that. Uh, the, the, his blessing depends upon our spiritual condition. It depends upon our obedience. We've got that. And then the third, and, and I really do want to conclude this portion of our study. There is the promise of his coming. When he spoke about the temple being a place of much greater blessing than the Solomonic temple was, if you go back to verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, you're going to read there about how this is going to be manifest at this time when the Lord himself comes to set up his kingdom. And what we read down here in verses 21 and 22, when he says, I will shake heaven and earth, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. He is talking about the time in which Christ will set up his kingdom and there will be the physical presence of the Savior with man. And so he's talking about his coming. Um, Whenever we partake of the Lord's table, how often do we do it? Or, or, Or how long do we do it? Until he comes. Now we know he's coming for us to take us in the rapture. But then we know he's also coming back to set up his kingdom some seven years after the rapture occurs, to rule and to reign for a thousand years. And that coming gave great hope and comfort to the Israelites. And, and you say, well, they're dead. Well, yeah, their, their bodies are, but their spirits have gone on. And what, what's going to prevent the Lord from doing what he said he's going to do? There is not one earthly power that is ever going to be able to present, prevent it. I don't care what governments are set up. I don't care what... Enemies try to stand in the face of Christ. He is coming and he is going to set up his kingdom and he will rule and he will reign. Even so, come Lord Jesus, huh? Yeah, it'll be a great day. And then he will reign and we will reign with him. No earthly power is going to prevent his reigning. And we will find ourselves in the presence of our Savior forever. Now, we could talk about more about His coming, but I, I, I won't do that now. We'll, we'll have messages that will deal with that later. 
when you have this knowledge, what knowledge is that? Well, let's, let's put it into this package. You are discouraged. Or you are disappointed. And maybe it's because of disobedience. Maybe you know, I am right now in a place where the Lord is spanking me, but good. And what is happening now, I know, is a product of my own doing. Then the Lord gives the same call to us that he gave to the Israelites. Turn around. Learn your lesson. Repent. Be contrite. So that I then have the doors open to do with you and for you what I want to do. And what is it that he wants to do? Well, he wants to do for you the same thing that he will do for those who for no other reason than God's refining their lives and he is making them more like Christ and bringing them more into the image of the Savior. And he says, I'm going to allow these things to happen, but don't you give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't be brokenhearted. Why? Because I promise you my presence. And I promise you my blessing. And I promise you I'm coming back for you. His presence, His blessing, His coming. That's why you don't have to be discouraged. It's why you don't have to be afraid. But it should make an impact upon your life. You know, in, in the, this passage and, and the concept of this passage, we find the writer of Hebrews telling us this. In Hebrews chapter uh, 12, listen to what it says in verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Amen? Let's stand. Father, so many of the experiences of the Israelites have put down before us an example of your sovereign work of the provisions that you have made for us, of the promises that you have given to us. And Father, I pray that as the Israelites learned at the message of Haggai the prophet, that their lives had been spiritually indifferent. They, they had drifted far from you. That yet when they turned, you were there to assure them of your presence and your blessing and that one day your kingdom would be established and they would enjoy the benefits of that kingdom. Father, the same things are true for us. And I pray that whoever might be discouraged here today would take great heart in the truths that you have communicated to us. And I pray that no one would become defeated by discouragement, but instead would draw upon those truths that they know are theirs 
Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.